Welcome to episode 83 of the Fertility Podcast. My name is Natalie, your host, and this is a bit of a strange episode to record in light of the Manchester bomb attack, which happened uh, a week ago today that this podcast is being published. And um, the reason I'm mentioning it is because my niece was at the uh, event. Thank goodness she got out and... um, Whilst as a family, we're all just making sure that we try and encourage her to talk about it as much as possible. One thing that really struck home was I do this podcast every week and we talk about starting families and bringing children into this world. And it it really does make you stop and think about this world that you're trying to bring children into. And I guess I just wanted to say something about it. It's affected so many of us every time we have to deal with one of these terror attacks wherever we may be it affects us all in so many different ways which is of course the intention and what we have to do is stand up tall and carry on living our lives day to day and not let it defy us which is something that I've seen in huge amounts in Manchester which is where I live here in the UK but we will carry on regardless we will stand strong and in this episode Once again, I am putting the spotlight on male fertility issues. And the first chat you're going to hear is with a lady called Cheryl Homer, who runs Andrology Solutions in the UK, which is the only clinic dedicated to male fertility. And I'm continuing on my mission to try and get awareness out there and understand why it is that men continue to be fast-tracked into fertility treatment when there is an issue with them, when it's male factor infertility. So Cheryl will explain all about what she does, why she does it and her views and then we're going to speak to a dad, a new dad who is blogging, who has had three rounds of fertility treatment and he's almost a prime example of what you hear me discuss with Cheryl. So I hope you enjoy it. So I'm now going to welcome Dr. Cheryl Homer from Andrology Solutions, which is a London-based clinic dedicated to male fertility, to talk more about her work and her background as a specialist in male fertility. So, Dr. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. First, tell me a little bit about your background, because you you do specialise in male fertility. So explain that journey. Okay, so uh, I am a research scientist initially. I have worked for many years looking at oocyte maturation, but I also got involved with clinical embryology. I was trained as a clinical embryologist and I ran the laboratories of various IVF clinics in both the private and public sector for quite some time. But I did become a little bit disillusioned with the way that male fertility was being handled. In other words, it wasn't really being looked at at all or investigated at all. Basically, men were simply a semen analysis and any treatment was based purely on the results of that semen analysis. And I felt that uh, I very much wanted to be involved in increasing the profile of male infertility and offering uh, a more investigative approach and also to try and see if there were ways that we could actually deal with male infertility because in many cases I felt that patients were being pushed on to the conveyor belt of ICSI treatment when in fact in certain cases they may not have needed that treatment or if they did have that treatment they were going in with faulty gametes, faulty sperm 
and it wasn't surprising that they were getting multiple treatment failures, spending a lot of money in the process. And also, this is uh, something that the NHS is having to deal with now, is uh, repetitive uh, ICSI treatment cycles that might not be needed, um, and repetitive failures that might be prevented if the males were investigated properly and offered appropriate treatment. So that's why I set up my own clinic, uh, dedicated to male infertility. I am a scientist, I'm not a medical doctor, so I do rely very heavily on uh, my colleagues, my consultant urologist colleagues, uh, who can then take over the reins from the medical side of things. That's basically me in a nutshell. Well, you mentioned your urologist colleagues, and I've spoken previously with Jonathan Ramsey uh, about his work as a urologist, and he talked about this multidisciplinary approach to get this kind of investigation that you're talking about into the, the, the whole process when a couple are investigating their fertility. And one of the things that we experienced when my husband and I went to meet him was he examined my husband, which has never been done. And we, we've now got a two-year-old. So in the whole process of having the treatment, him having tests, and then us being put through to have ICSI, nobody looked at him, which I, I didn't understand. Is that, from your view, that physical examination, as, as far as more testing at the start, starting point something that you hope is, is going to happen more? Well absolutely I think you've hit the nail on the head is that uh, male infertility uh, can occur in up to 50% of couples having problems and purely by doing a semen analysis where you're just literally looking at the, the production of sperm is not going to give you any information about the cause of that man's infertility and of course a man has an anatomy just like a female has an anatomy there are possible problems with that anatomy that can lead to infertility. So, of course, why wouldn't you want to, to physically examine a man, to do more investigative tests and ultrasound scanning, for example? These are all things that are just routine when it comes to investigating couples, investigating the female. No doctor would consider offering IVF treatment without at least having performed some ultrasound scans, some hormone profiles, physical exams as a woman it doesn't make sense to to ignore the man in that respect no, I, I mean, I'm having conversations with experts like yourself and you're saying the same thing and I'm, I'm, I'm finding it hard to understand when it doesn't make sense why then it's not happening with these early stage investigations, do you think? I think the problem is that the triaging is that when couples attend for infertility, they, they go to their GP. And I think that the GP's understanding of management of fertility, if, the, if there is any problem at all, then females can be referred to a gynecology-led clinic where they can be investigated. But andrology in this country is not a well-known profession. Not many urologists or medical doctors focus on male infertility, on andrology. You know, we all know about gynecology. We've all heard about gynecologists. But who's heard of andrology? Who's heard of andrologists? In fact, these urologists, the, the, the people that I work with, don't even call themselves primarily andrologists. They are primarily called urologists or uroandrologists. The field of andrology is not recognized. And I think this is the thing, is that people get referred to gynecologists, they get referred to fertility clinics, but 95% of which are run by gynecologists. There's not a single fertility clinic that is run by an andrologist. 
So that can tell you something too. And it's the same in Europe and in the States. It's exactly the same. Um, so I think the, the, the whole field of andrology needs to be put out there. We, we need to shout and wave and jump up and down and say we need to be heard. And I think this, this, is, this is a major problem. The, the, the couples are not triaged properly and they are all too often just sent immediately for, for high-tech treatment rather than sort of managing their infertility as, as a couple. Well, let's talk about some of the fertility testing that you do and the different stages that men come to you in the hope that the little bit of uh, awareness raising that this podcast can do might mean that people are asking more questions when they're having these consultations. Because you do a whole range of different levels and I was really interested in the different ones, for example, this oxidative stress levels that can be found in semen. So do you want to talk to me a bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, one one of the things that, that we're sort of limited to with the men is that Everyone would sort of agree that if you're, you think you have a problem with your fertility, what you do for the man is a semen analysis. Now, the semen analysis is key. Unfortunately, there are lots of different types of semen analysis out there. And I think what I need to make very clear here is that there is a very large difference between the type of test that you do as a diagnostic test as opposed to a semen analysis that you might have done in a fertility clinic that is done purely to determine what type of fertility treatment is suitable for you. For example, if you are going to a fertility clinic, you've already gone to the end of your journey and you are asking that clinic to perform assisted conception treatment for you. And what the embryologists want to know in that clinic is are your sperm good enough for IUI treatment or is it only good enough for IVF or can the only treatment we can have be ICSI? So the semen analysis they do will give them that local information within their clinic. The semen analysis that they perform invariably is not going to be there to diagnose male infertility because that should have been done before the couple even attended the fertility clinic and it should have been done through the GP because at that stage that type of semen analysis is totally different because not only are you interested in the parameters that we all know the count the motility the shape of the sperm but the other things in a semen analysis that can give us a real indication as to what is actually causing the problem with the fertility. So the types of things I'm talking about are antibodies, for example. Antibodies shouldn't be in a semen sample. It's not normal. What is causing those antibodies to be there? Why are they there? And if we understand why they're there, that might give us an information, information as to the cause of the fertility and we can treat. So, for example, antibodies might be present because there's an underlying infection. And there is evidence now to show that in underlying infections may contribute to a delay in conception, poor fertilization rates and poor pregnancy rates. So if we can isolate the infection, we treat the infection, hopefully that patient will no longer be subfertile. Again, antibodies may be present because of some sort of injury or because there might be a varicocele present. It might give us an indication that there is 
is a varicocele present. And again, we know that varicocele is the leading known cause of infertility. And we now also know that there is more and more evidence coming to light that shows varicocele repair can actually improve semen parameters and improve pregnancy rates without even having to go to IVF or ICSI treatment. And would you say that a varicocele could be discovered by physical examination in the early stages? Yes, not always, but it can be. But an ultrasound scan will tell you definitely whether you're or not you have an al- a varicocele. So again, you may have what appears to be normal semen parameters, but one of the things that varicocele does and that infection does, and what we now understand to be the leading cause of how these things cause a problem of fertility, is the generation of oxidative stress. Okay, so oxidative stress is something that is triggered when the varicocele is present or when you have an underlying infection or if you're smoking too many cigarettes or um, if you have an inflamed prostate, for example. All of these things may generate what we call oxidative stress. Now, oxidative stress is not something you can measure by just looking at a semen analysis. There are indications If you have very poor motility or the vitality is poor in your semen, that may indicate oxidative stress being present. But the only way you can find out is by doing a test for that. And if you have oxidative stress, this will lead to impairment of motility. It can affect fertilization rates. It can affect embryo development. It has been associated with possible mutagenesis and it has also been associated with one of the leading causes of DNA damage in the sperm and if you have DNA damage in the sperm and if you have oxidative stress this is going to trigger problems with your fertility and are we also saying possible recurrent miscarriage oh yes oh yes definitely so what is the point in looking at a semen analysis and saying, well, I've got two years of unexplained infertility, I have had multiple miscarriages, we don't know why, we don't know what the problem is because my sperm look great, maybe the motility is not perfect, but sperm basically looks fine and will go and have IVF treatment with damaged sperm and then people don't understand why they have repetitive failures. To me, it doesn't really make much sense why people do that and in fact what you're doing is you're asking people to spend a huge amount on costly IVF treatment when they could have had a couple of simple tests to perhaps pinpoint when there might be a problem and again as you say even if we can't ameliorate their semen parameters to the point where they can have natural conception, at least if we can improve the genetic integrity of the sperm and the stability of that sperm by removing oxidative stress, if they have to have IVF treatment, they're in a much better place because they are much more likely to be successful. So it makes a lot of sense to investigate the man properly before he goes to all the expense of being shunted down the IVF route, which they may not even need to have. 
and how they deal with their infertility. How many couples or or men are you seeing at the start of a fertility journey? Is it more likely to be people that have had failed cycles and have decided that they're going to take it into their own hands and try and you know look at themselves, the guys, or are are there referrals coming to you now? Well, I think it, it's a whole mixture actually. I see a mixed bag of people. I think people are much more internet aware. They're much more savvy now about their fertility. Um, I think schools are pointing it out a little bit more now as well. So as soon as people sort of finish their university careers and they're they're into a longer-term relationship, they're immediately aware that uh, fertility can be an issue. It's not something that's swept under the carpet these days. People are talking about it, which is really good. And I think people are also aware that what they put into their bodies is what they get out. So I think people are aware about factors that can have an impact. So people are more generally aware. Some people haven't even started on their journey. They haven't even started trying to conceive. And yet they want to come in and just check out a few things. So they have a few tests just to check that everything's okay. You know, you don't really want people to to be overly concerned. You don't want people to be stressed about their fertility you want people to be able to go out there and try to have a child naturally but to be aware that there are appropriate channels where they need to start to to get appropriate investigations so i see people who come just at the start of their journey maybe they've been trying for a few months it hasn't happened maybe they've been trying for some time and they know that there is a problem things are not happening and they want to check it out but equally i see people who have been through um, multiple cycles of IVF where it hasn't worked, or they've had recurrent miscarriage. They've had the, women, the women have been investigated every which way, and they haven't even had the man walk over the door of the clinic to even ask him any questions mm. about his input. So I, I do see the whole gamut. I do find it very, very upsetting when we see couples who've been through years of multiple failed cycles of IVF, the emotional trauma, the financial costs, and then coming in only to find that there is a problem from the male side that should have been addressed in the first place. It's hugely frustrating and hugely frustrating for the patients as well. Now, one conversation that I had recently with Tony Rutherford from IVI about a survey they'd done looking at the kind of effects on... um, fertility treatment within men um, because they showed that men are talking about kind of five years after even successful treatments you know they're still feeling the the emotional effects of the fertility treatment and I was talking to him about this multidisciplinary approach and more intervention if there is a male factor in the early stages and one point that he raised which I'm interested to see what you think was about the evidence of if there is treatment to the the sperm health in the earlier stages is there the evidence to show that it will result in live birth and I know that with everything science-based we want it to be evidence-based is that a problem that you're finding that there isn't the stats to back up your tests and that's why more people aren't coming or where do you sit with with that as a statement well i think that's that's very interesting because i think you know there are certain rules for ivf treatment certain rules for everybody else i think if you look at ivf treatments and all the issues with ivf add-ons you will find that there is negligible evidence there for any of this sort of thing and yet it seems to be perfectly acceptable within the ivf field to introduce all sorts of 
treatments that can actually have a significant impact on on the health of the person uh, with injections of intralipids, um, endometrial scratching where you're physically causing harm to the endometrium. Not to mention the cost. Yeah, not to mention the cost. Whereas to offer a test for £100 where the, there are questions like that sort of beggar's belief. But having said that, I quite agree that all of these tests must be evidence-based, absolutely. And there, there is evidence-based, certainly for the oxidative stress test that we offer. I spent four years validating the test. We have its CE marked through the MHRA. There have been a plethora of research studies carried out looking at the role of oxidative stress on male infertility and some of the treatments involved. There have been a lot of meta-analysis and systematic reviews looking at the role of antioxidants in reduction of reactive oxygen species that cause oxidative stress and the benefits of those in terms of semen parameter improvement and increase in pregnancy rates. There is the evidence out there. There's certainly similar evidence out there for sperm DNA fragmentation testing. Um, I think it's always very difficult to do randomized placebo-controlled trials with patients who are quite reluctant to take part in all of these. So the evidence tends to be mainly, as I said, meta-analyses and systematic reviews rather than randomized placebo-controlled trials. Although there are such studies, there are randomized placebo-controlled trials that have looked at the role of antibiotic treatment, of oxidant nutritional uh, supplements, antioxidants, and also now we've got new studies coming out looking at the role of varicocele repair and increase in semen parameters and pregnancy rates. So there is a considerable amount of evidence out there Um, It is true to say that um, randomized placebo-controlled trials have been limited, but I think this is the problem with all of fertility. If you look at ICSI, that was an accident, was introduced immediately uh, with no research and development whatsoever, and all I can say about that is that we're all very, very lucky that now we have the hindsight of looking at the fact that there have been no significant consequences to that treatment. But who knew at the time? It was hugely risky. We're talking about doing a few diagnostic tests here. We're not talking about implementation in the clinical field of clinical techniques that can have a totally different form of impact here. And when you're looking at diagnostic testing, you're looking at validation of a test and you're looking at whether or not there have been any studies that show management of the results of that testing can show significant improvement, and those studies have been done. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, all that you've just said, and I really hope that people listening, it's got them thinking. And one kind of example I'd like to just gauge your thoughts on is I've got a a close friend who's going for third round of IVF treatment, and what's happening along the way is... I'm telling her stuff I'm learning through this podcast and I'm giving her more questions to ask, um, just sharing the knowledge that I'm learning. And they're kind of on an unexplained diagnosis. And I'd said that she, they needed to ask for her husband to have more tests. And she's come back to me to say that he's had all the tests done. 
um, the, all the extra tests done. So I don't know whether you know the answer to this, but in that kind of scenario, and if a guy is in a clinic and he's saying, I want more tests done, is it standard that the clinics are going to be offering the kind of tests that you're offering? When she says he's yeah. had all the tests done, is yeah. he likely to have, or is that the clinic yeah. telling him, yeah, 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 we've done all the tests? Like, would they have looked at sperm DNA damage? Uh, some will, right. some won't. Um, the oxidative stress test, there's only us in the UK who are offering it. This test has been developed in the USA, and I, we in, in the laboratory, we, we developed it in conjunction with Professor Ashok Agarwal from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, who developed the test initially. Um, but the tests are offered, I believe, in Australia as well. Um, uh, John Aitken has done a huge amount of work with uh, oxidative stress. Sheena Lewis herself did a lot of uh, work on oxidative stress in her early days. And I think that to, it's almost like, like trying to get blood from stone when you're, when you're trying to ask fertility clinics to acknowledge any form of testing for male infertility other than a semen analysis because the, the standard answer will always be, well, they'll always end up having to have ICSI anyhow, so what's the point? So my point is that if you are offering ICSI treatment with defective sperm that have a defective function, that they have a, a defect in fertilization and embryo development, a defective genetic integrity, increased oxidative stress, that you are going to put that patient at risk of having failed treatment. And I don't think that that's appropriate. In this case, if there's not been any sign of any issue with the sperm could these kind of tests you've just described show something if the initial semen analysis had shown that the mobility and the motility was fine or is it only once there you see some issue that you might see further issues i think certainly there's no reason to believe that if the semen parameters look great that everything else is fine with the sperm so it wouldn't hurt is what i'm asking it wouldn't hurt for them to have another test it wouldn't hurt. I mean, my feeling is that, you know, I do understand that these tests are an additional cost. So I wouldn't suggest that people ask for these tests immediately. But I think certainly if anybody is considering spending a huge amount of money on IVF treatment or asking the NHS to spend a huge amount of money on their IVF treatment, that I think it would be a very sensible idea to do a complete investigation of the male before they go down that route to ensure that that's really the appropriate treatment for them and that maybe there might be alternative treatments that the men can have that will improve their fertility so that they either they don't need that treatment or if they do need that treatment that they can go in with it knowing that they've got the best sperm they possibly have um, to maximize their chances of it working. After all, if you were told that you could go and play Wimbledon, you wouldn't just go and play. You would be trained for it. You would get the best sneakers, the best balls, the best tennis rackets, and you would make sure you give yourself the best chance before you play it. Yeah. And that's what IVF is at the end of the day. So you're in London. Do you have any satellite I'm... clinics or are people needing to come to London to, to have your tests? I don't, unfortunately. So if they want to have those tests, they need to come to London to have the tests. Um, what we tend to do, because we do see a lot of people from actually from all over the world, so we do tend to get them in for the test, and then we do the telephone consultations afterwards so they don't have to come back twice. These tests are valid tests, and, and the thing about them is, is that in, in a lot of cases, we can actually do something about them once we get those results. Not always, but we can a lot of the time. 
And just, I know you can't put an actual cost because everything's going to be bespoke with the different treatment packages, but can you give me a scale of the minimum to the maximum if people are spending money on these tests? Well, I mean, a semen analysis we offer here, which is a hugely detailed semen analysis, is £175. Oxidative stress measurement is £125. Our DNA fragmentation test is 370 And our semen culture is £60. But we also offer a more detailed infection screen for about £110. So these are the type of costs that you're that you're looking at well when i know friends that are talking in the thousands of the money they're spending on their treatment i'm not saying nothing but it's you know a a much smaller amount to swallow so to speak um and as far as say somebody came and a couple came and had the tests and then they were wanting to pass that information on if they'd already started working with a clinic. I know you have all sorts of counselling and support services available. Is that something that you'd help a couple transition with that information on to wherever they're going next? Very much so. I mean, we see ourselves as a very independent diagnostic testing service, if you like, and providing that information and explaining the results of the patients. But we know what our limitations are. We're all scientists here, but we work very closely with gynecologists. We work very closely with uroandrologists, and we work closely with nutritionists. So we're very, very happy to draw in all the other expertise to help our patients along their pathway. And we're very, very happy to work with any fertility clinic that wants to work with us. Please come and see us. Anytime our doors are open. <laughs> all right, Cheryl. Well, I will put all the details of your clinic on the show notes for this episode. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. And thank you for explaining all the different uh, ways that men can just think about what's going on. Because part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast as well is to help guys not feel awful. You know, if the diagnosis has been that it's an issue with them and that there are all these different things that, that they could consider before embarking on the treatment. So let's hope that, you know, what you've explained will maybe get some people hopefully ask more questions great well that's fine and it's been a pleasure to to be able to talk with you thank you very much thanks cheryl you take care thanks bye Bye. all the information about cheryl and andrology solutions will be on the show notes i'll also put a link to the conversation i had with jonathan ramsey who's the urologist that i mentioned in this episode and we're going to hear from our next guest in just a moment the fertility podcast is supported by ovusense If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, OvuSense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class two medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and it fits like a tampon so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. You use it at night whilst you sleep and then in the morning you simply remove wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now OvuSense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more visit ovusense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey and you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. Now, once again, I have found somebody on Twitter who I was keen to get on the show and we're going to be speaking to a relatively new blogger who, after having fertility treatment and then becoming a father, decided to put it all down to get his experiences out there and I think he's doing a brilliant job. 
I'm now going to welcome James Doherty, who writes a blog called Scantily Dad to the podcast, who I've discovered on Twitter, which I love when I find new people. James has written a really fascinating blog about his fertility journey, covering all sorts of different things from the difference between ICSI and IVF to how he felt when he found out. He talks about what failed treatments like, what successful treatments like, and what I find really brilliant is he talks about how to deal with the bad news. So he's really covering all the experiences that you might go through when you found out that your route to parenthood probably isn't going to be as straightforward as you'd hope. So, James, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, really do. Thanks. And uh, we've, we've managed to kind of speak post-poo explosion because you're now dad to twins. Exactly, yeah, now, now dad to twins. After oh, two and a half years, I guess, of infertility treatment and dealing with the pressures and depressions and hardship that come along with infertility, now we are blessed with two miracles, Max and Matilda. And how old are they? They are six months okay. today. And oh. it's actually quite apt that you're, it's quite apt that you're calling me today, actually, because it's actually, I'm, I'm from Ireland originally, but I live in Berlin, Germany. Um, but it's actually Father's Day today in, in Germany Happy as well. Happy Father's Day, your first Father's yeah. Day. My first Father's Day, Amazing. yeah. I never, thought I'd actually, I never thought I'd actually have a Father's Day, but here I am with twins. Oh. Well, let's talk about that journey because um, I've, I've been dipping around your blog post, of which there are many. It's a really cool site. And one of the things you'd said was after multiple tests, you were insensitively greeted with the worst news of our lives that I was infertile. Now, when we were told that we were going to need treatment, my husband was told something similar. And I just want you to kind of... Tell me at that point what was going on with you and, and, and then how you dealt with what happened next. Yeah, initially the news came, it was uh, it was two, I, th- I think it was September 2014. Olivia's a little bit older than me, so she's 30, she was 35 at the time. So her biological clock was ticking and we knew that it was time to really start trying to have a family. We cried for about a year or so, kind of properly, you know, timing the fertile days and really putting a lot of effort into making sure that we were like getting everything right, like trying to have babies. And we did it for a year nonstop. And then we had a discussion with a friend one night in a bar and he was like, well, maybe, you know, if you've been trying for a year, you should get checked out. And it hadn't really crossed our minds that there could be anything wrong. I didn't even consider it as like an option, but we went to a clinic, a fertility clinic in West Berlin. And it was, yeah, she said, the, she, as, as I said on the blog, she insensitively greeted us with, yeah, you've, the chances of you having a baby are one in a million. So you might not even bother trying, or you should not even bother trying naturally anymore. Which well, was, stop having yeah, quite, sex, just, just don't bother. Yeah, basically, yeah, just don't bother anymore. Right. Which was, yeah, and I, we were just, I was just like, it's like a slap in the face. And like, you know, it's, it's like, for me, the, the issue was with the motility and morphology of the sperm. Like, you know, I'm lucky enough that I can still, you know, I have a high enough sperm count and can have sex, but she was like, no, don't. And I was just like, well, that's a really terrible way to deliver the news. So we, we took it quite badly for the first, I guess the first week or so, I took it really badly. We both took it badly initially. And then we decided, you know, she gave us the options that like ICSI was the way to go. And then we said, okay, we'll we'll try ICSI. It's like, we didn't even cross our minds to, that we wouldn't do it. We're like 100%, we're we're gonna do everything that we can to have a family. And in Germany, actually at the time, the clinic recommended if we weren't married, but if you get married, um, the fertility clinic is, or the fertility treatment is covered by your health insurance. Okay. 
Yeah, which is as, which as is a married, amazing. As a married couple. As a married couple, yeah. Right. So it, it, I suppose it's like in the UK where there there is funding within the NHS. This is part of this is part of the health insurance that you pay a monthly thing already. Is that right? Yeah. Well, they say health insurance is free in Germany. Your employer pays it. Your right. employer pays your health insurance. Then if you're unemployed, the government pay for, pay for it. Your employer pays it, but everyone actually gets paid a little bit less. By the employer actually pays you that much less, if you know what I mean. Right. But it's mandatory that they pay it. Okay, so that's amazing. So you, you you got married and your treatment and you had how many rounds did you have to have? Three, three. They paid for all three. So we saved somewhere between like eighteen and twenty thousand euros. Wow. Okay. Now, before you got to that point, because I've been trying to really get my head around this conversation when it's male factor that seems to happen, which is what happened with us, where it's like, there's a problem with your sperm, you need ICSI. Because what I've been discovering more about is that, and this isn't the case in all cases, and I'm just saying now I'm no expert in what I'm about to say, there is a conversation to be had about looking more at the sperm DNA and whether the sperm DNA damage and whether more can be done with the way the sperm is before entering into that treatment to improve chances of success if you are going to have ICSI. Was any kind of conversation like that had with you? Not really, to be honest with you. Um, the, the first two clinics that we went, we, we, tr- we went to one clinic for the first two tries and failed. Um, and we felt like kind of a number in, in the, this clinic. It was just so busy. They were we were constantly with different fertility doctors. They were just like, it was just not like we didn't get any kind of personal treatment at all, to be honest. Um, they didn't, they didn't even do full proper checkups on Olivia, which we f- found out a second time. There was subsequently, um, she had Hashimoto's thyroid, thyroiditis, which is like a, a thyroid autoimmune thing. It's not a serious problem, but it can affect the quality of her eggs. They okay. look deeper into that. But from the men's side, no, I, I, I heard nothing. They did, they went, didn't go deeper at all. I kind of, took it into my own hands to change a lot about my life. I kind of wrote a series of blog posts on the on the blog. Um, I can send it on to you, you can put it on the show notes or share it. Um, it's like the, what I changed to have successful IVF treatment. Because I know you've um, also reviewed some supplements and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's really exactly. interesting. And, and how long would you say you spent doing all of that before you next... Had a, had yeah, well, the, to be honest with you, like I, I, st- I started changing a little bit, like getting the first time I got a little bit healthier and started like I was, I always exercised, I exercised quite a lot, but I kind of got a bit fitter, lost a bit of weight, um, started eating a bit better for the first, but for the first two, but not really like 100% focused. But then the third time, I like that was actually our kind of last hurrah because it was the last time it was actually going to be paid for as well. Then we would have to pay for the next treatment if it didn't work. So. Both of us kind of really got focused. And then I spent about like four months maybe leading up to the treatment. So it was in May, probably in January time of last year. I just went really strict on my diet, um, like eating kind of mostly plant-based, lots of testosterone-boosting foods, lots of like stuff high in antioxidants. I was kind of researching as much as I could what foods would, would help with my fertility. Then I got my body in, like I lost about eight kilos. We started meditating to, to deal with the stress, both of us did, which actually helped us quite a lot as well. And were you getting um, any external support, like counselling? Not really, no. no. Not really. I kind of got went like I just went into focus mode myself. Like it's, I guess it's kind of the like man's way of dealing with it. Like initially, I dealt with it being depressed and feeling down. Then I said, okay, like I'm quite a problem solver as a person. I was like, and I kind of weirdly enjoy like challenges or when someone says something won't work. I kind of 
I'm very good at focusing then and kind of going into focus mode. So I, I just completely changed, like basically my whole lifestyle. The first time we found it, we stopped smoking cigarettes, basically cut out alcohol, just down to a couple of glasses of wine, maybe a week with food. No stress, no bad food, no alcohol, exercising regularly, meditating, getting our mind in the right place. But externally, no, it didn't really have any help. I kind of just went on a self-help journey, which actually put me in a very good place. And it kind of a lot of the habits have continued after the, the successful IVF treatment since we've had the babies as well. Well, now you need all the energy you can get with twins, don't you? Exactly, exactly. And that kind of, I, I, that's why I've kind of continued the, the the routine, like, you know, where I'm still staying as healthy as possible and eating as well as possible because I'm trying to sleep as much as possible and <laughs> looking after myself first so I can look after them. So what point did you start with Scantily Dad and start kind of making all these different blog entries because you've really covered a lot of ground with all the information that you've done and I and I, I like that you you really talk about the different parts of the journey you talk about failed treatment what successful treatments like dealing with the bad news I think it's so kind of vital that you've managed to put all that down I came up with the idea when I was in the hospital when the babies were born they were born 10, ten weeks prematurely which right. was which that was a, we, we, we've thought we'd been through enough hardship and pain. And then for them to come so early, they were mm. like, Olivia had to get even special cortisone injections because their lungs wouldn't be developed enough to breathe. Like it was uh, 30 weeks. So they came out and they were like, they both fit in the palm of my hands. They were, um, they were under three pounds. Um, yeah. So they were like, they were, t- and then straight away, Max went on to a, breathing matilda was okay um but max went straight onto a breathing apparatus to help him breathe and then they were born on the wednesday and the friday went into work and olivia called me and she was like max is his lungs after collapsing he has to have an operation and i just panicked so flew up to the hospital got there and like i remember i got on the way to the hospital like i was like there was like tears rolling down my face i was trying to like hold hold in the emotions of like my newborn son like needing an operation didn't know how serious it was. Yeah, it was. It was really devastating. I got, and I got to the hospital, and I was like, I know, I need to. I just felt I needed to do something, or like I just had the epiphany that I need to. I don't know, just do something or help people, or I don't know. I like I just, but I didn't know what it was at the at the moment, and I was like, I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to write about something, and then I just it came to me a couple of weeks later. Like, you know, I should actually start writing about the IVF journey and ICSI and you know what we've been through and help people that are going through the situation. And took a couple of months before I kind of got everything started but I started writing it in March of this year so two two months ago two months I've been ago pre- and you've done all of that yeah yeah I've been yeah I've, Are you I've work? been pretty much no I'm working I, I, I was I was when I started it I was working but basically I usually get up in the morning at six feed the babies and then write for an hour every every day more or less wow I am um, impressed and then I write usually on my lunch break for half an hour. And then whatever spare time I have when I go to sleep, I'll do like half an hour here and there. It's just, I've got, I had so much to get out. I was yeah. just like, I, I was getting, I just, it just flowed out of my body. I didn't mind doing it. It's kind of actually re, like, enjoyed writing as well. Something that I enjoyed when I was younger, but didn't really, haven't pursued. Like I work in online marketing, affiliate marketing for the last few years here in Berlin. I do like like my job, but I, writing is kind of something that comes a little bit more naturally to me, maybe. I could sit there for like two hours and it feels like 10 or 15 minutes. So, and you know, I had a journey to, to share with people and I just wanted to help as many people as possible. I'm putting everything into a book as well at the moment. Okay. Um, I'm gonna, sh- hopefully that'll be out sometime before, maybe the end of the summer. Cause like the, the blog posts almost themselves are, are, are perfectly formatted to go into like uh, 
book format. And there's so many pictures. I mean, I've just been looking at the little pictures of your little ones in hospital and they're so little with all the tubes. And I think from the conversations that I've had with people that have used either blogs or, you know, like I'm doing with the podcast, A, you know full well that when you've been through something like this, it's something that you never have predicted and you've got no kind of reference point of how it's going to make you feel. So if you can help yourself with putting it down and then know that it might help someone else, at least you know that that other person, you know, has got that little bit of support from you ultimately. Exactly. That's like I, I did another interview, as I said, for another summit in, in the US yesterday. And like I was saying to them, like, you know, if I can help one person, yeah. then then you're then I'm happy. Like if someone reaches out to me, which has actually already happened, it's crazy. A lot of friends back in Ireland reached out to me after I started or posted my first kind of blog post on Facebook and they're like well I can't believe you're talking about this we're going through the same thing but like I've no one to talk to and I don't talk to anybody about it and I was like feel free to talk to me I'm here for you I'm open you know I guess after being through it and coming out the other side successful it's easier to talk about it than when you're actually in in the process and um, but it's good for people to know that you know you can go out the other side and like I don't know there's it, sh- it shouldn't be but people are embarrassed by it it's it's a disease that you can't stick it chooses you you don't you haven't done anything to you know it's not your fault but i think that's one of the biggest things the blame and the fault and what you're saying so many women feel the same but i think so many more men do it and they do it in silence and from the different episodes that i've done and and quite recently i shared and i'll share it with you for your blog as well there's a survey that a university in leeds are running where any man over 16 they're asking to kind of anonymously talk about their infertility experience to just kind of gather how people are feeling and I think it's running till the end of the summer and they're going to publish the the data in, in the in the autumn time to just try and again help guys see that there are so many other men I mean it's 50 50 you'll know the stats it's 50 50 when a couple are, are dealing with infertility the male factor and so often you know guys are just sat there feeling pretty shit I think as much as we can get guys talking, which is why I was really keen to talk to you. And I'm I'm sat looking at the picture that you 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 created where you reenacted Beyonce's uh, yeah. twin bump pose, which is just yeah. priceless. Well, look, yeah. James, let's let's keep in touch about your book. And I'm going to also, for anybody listening, you'll know from a previous episode, I spoke with Gareth Down about his men only Facebook page. And I'm going to pass Gareth's details on to James and then hopefully James will yeah. join the group and share his blog. I'd love to. And we're both now trying to conquer instagram aren't we so we can yeah, share in exactly. many different ways but look exactly. i think it's so fab what you're doing and best of luck with carrying on and thanks Amelia. When, when i do launch the book i'll get in touch and maybe i can come back on and we can have a chat about it yeah definitely are you doing it as an ebook or are you doing a hard copy book um so i'm going to decide when everything's penned and then i have it written um ebook probably makes the most sense logistically because i don't have to do as much work which yeah. is yeah if anyone has any ideas reach out to me and let me know all right well i'll put all the details on the show notes of your blog and you're on twitter and you're on instagram and you're on facebook and i know that you've got a little bit where you're asking for people as contributors which is pretty cool so people if they want to write they can get in touch can't they yeah absolutely if anyone wants to get in touch a lot of people have messages to share and i'm i'm like i'm not i'm very open to you know people writing on the blog if the topic is right and they're interested because like a lot of people don't have a platform to write on or they want to maybe share with my audience my audience or vice versa um yeah, yeah i'm happy for, to, for contributors so cool reach out if you want all righty well you have a good day with your twins i hope you don't you have too. any more poo explosions <laughs> hopefully not all right thanks james <laughs> thanks Nat. bye bye so two sides of the story there the investigation of male fertility and a, a prime example of 
a male fertility story that had a positive result, but third time and part of the issue, it seems, with the treatment of men on the fertility journey is that if they were looked at sooner, as we've been discussing, maybe James and his partner wouldn't have had to have the three rounds and might have had more success after their first cycle. Now, as I do keep stressing, I'm no expert. This podcast is all about raising awareness of what is available to you if you found yourself in a place where your route to parenthood isn't going to be as straightforward as you'd hoped. And I really hope there's some interesting information here. I will put all the details of James um, on the show notes as well so you can get in touch with him. And if you have any questions, then you can just let me know. My email is natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com. The show notes for this episode then are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash dad. Okay, it's thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash dad. So do have a look and you can also register. You can get through to iTunes and leave me a review if you like. There's links to Stitcher and Spreaker and Acast, the whole plethora of podcast platforms that are ever growing. And I'm now on Instagram at FertilityPoddy, which is my Twitter handle. And I could continue. I probably will be continuing as these episodes go on to tell you how you can contact and support me. It's always so awesome to hear from you and please continue to do so. And until the next time, 